0: We are currently working our way through the book of James together as a church, and we've entitled the entire series through this short little book, True Religion. Now it's a short letter, and you might be thinking, how come it takes seven weeks to go through a letter that takes about seven minutes to read? The answer is that we don't want to just simply read the letter, but we want to really understand it. We want to try to make some connections between what the author was saying to the original recipients and and how that obviously uh, impacts our understanding of it in our day and age. And uh, this morning, uh, this particular message, uh, we're going to call it True Repentance. And so maybe you looked up uh, the bulletin ahead of time this week on the website, or you got the Weekender, and you saw that title, True Repentance, and uh, you thought to yourself, I don't really know if I want to go to church this week. I don't know if that's really something I want to sit here and listen to. I'm going to hear the pastor, you know, tell me how I'm such a bad person because I don't confess my sins and repent enough. Well, I hope that's not going to be your experience this morning. I hope instead you're going to get a clear view of what repentance really is, especially as it relates to last week's message, which was true humility. Uh, In James chapter 4 verse 7, we hear about the word submission. We could have just as easily called that message true submission in 4.7, and then in 4.10, humility. And in both cases, uh, James is telling the Christian church, as it's kind of scattered throughout the area, he wasn't writing to one just particular house church. He was saying that you need to understand that you are to be in subjection to God and to be humbled by God. The letter was originally written in Greek, and Greek is one of those languages that is very precise. One of the reasons why it's a joy to study it and to use it as the platform for preaching is because when you understand it and you know it, you can decipher what the author is intending to say. In English, it's not quite as precise. Now I talked about this a little bit last week, and I don't mean to belabor the point, but it's very important the way that James talks about our submission and our humility. It's constructed in such a way as to make it clear that this is happening to you. Uh, that you are being subjected, and you are being humbled. And it was an event that happened in the past, and it has ongoing results. You are in a position of humility, a position of submission, and the only person to whom you submit yourself totally, absolutely, completely, and without any qualification, eternally, is God. In fact, when submission is used elsewhere in the New Testament, it's very clear that that submission is voluntary, and it is temporal, and it is conditional. The submission that Jesus showed to His parents, for example, the submission that wives show to their husbands, the submission that citizens show to their government, even the submission that church members show to elders— There are limits to it. There's a condition around it, but that is not the case when it comes to submission and humility before God. We are among those enemies who have been put under His feet. And if you understand yourself and you understand God and His holiness, you're actually content to be subject to Him because He is holy, because He is perfect, and because He will only impose upon us that which is good for us. Now, in light of that, we have to understand repentance. And to begin with this morning, I'm going to go back and borrow something from a short little book written by a man named Thomas Watson. If you're familiar with him, he is one of the Puritans. If you're familiar with the Puritans, you'll know that that these were a group of men who came across from England. They were the ones who believed that the church should not be headed up by an individual, so they rejected the Anglican church in England. They didn't think the king should be the head of the church. They believed churches should be independently governed, as it were. They believed that Christ was the only head of the church, and so they dissented from all the rules in England, and they were subject to losing their licenses as preachers, and so they came to the colonies. And most of the early colonies were led by these Puritans who later came to be known in America as Presbyterians. Now, one of these Puritans was a guy named uh, Thomas Watson, and, and, and I, I, look, not every Puritan was created equal. Some of them are, are, are really harsh and, and I think legalistic, and um, I don't particularly enjoy reading them. Others are very soft and warm and, and clear and, and filled with these beautiful, rich illustrations from nature, and, and Thomas Watson is one of those. And so when Thomas Watson goes after this issue of repentance, I felt like I could really learn from him in a way that wasn't going to constantly make me want to correct or change or, or soften. And he says this about repentance, okay? There's about six steps to understanding true repentance. He said, number one, it begins with seeing. You have to be able to see sin for what it is, and only God can open up your eyes. And the second one is sorrow. There needs to be a godly sorrow over sin. A genuine feeling of sorriness, if you will, for what you have done. Thirdly is confession. This knowledge and sorrow has to turn to confession. You have to be willing to acknowledge it. You have to be willing to call it what it is. It's sin. And that leads to the fourth one, and that is shame. Now there is a place for shame, even in the Christian life. The shame of realizing what you've you've done. Even a believer is going to feel shame from time to time because they realize the intensity of the consequences of the sin that they have voluntarily engaged in. But after shame comes hatred. Hatred is looking at sin for what it is and hating it. It is hating that thing in your life that you just can't seem to shake. We, We sung the song earlier, Love Constraining to Obedience. I love that hymn, and Dave has explained it to us in the past, so if you're visiting with us, uh, that hymn might have been new to you, and and, and maybe you need a little bit of explanation. When he talks about then in the hymn, he says, that's what I used to think. Like, like before I became a Christian, I used to think I would try really hard to earn favor with God, but now I realize that He is going to do that through me on account of the work of Christ. So the then was before, and the now is after you understand the gospel. But in a sense, he says, this thing which I used to do, now inside I see a hatred of it. That's a good sign. Hatred is a good thing. Christians, I liberate you to hate at will anything that is sin. Maybe you think, well, Christians shouldn't hate anything. Ah, you're wrong. Here's something to hate. Let me liberate you from the fear of hating it. Hate it with the most passionate hatred that you can possibly garner within yourself and with the power of the Holy Spirit to see it for what it is. So it starts with sight, then it goes to sorrow, then it goes to confession, then it goes to shame, and then there is this real sense of hatred, and that is what leads to the sixth element, which he calls turning, turning from it, turning in a different direction. You know, repentance really means to turn. It means to be aiming in one direction and then turn to another. And and the beauty of repentance is this. Not only does it turn from sin, but it requires you then to turn to who? To God in the restoration of of that relationship, in the restoration of that fellowship. And so, as we begin this morning, we're going to take that kind of as our understanding of this when it comes to repentance. And at the end, I'm going to clarify it for you, because there's, I think, three different kinds of repentance. What I just described to you was a gospel repentance, uh, but there's also a natural repentance and even a legal repentance, and if you have a bulletin this morning, you'll notice in the second half of that that there's some uh, space for you to fill that in when we get there, okay? But first, let's look at the text. So, if you have a bulletin, you can turn there and uh, take a look at it. I'm just going to read it for you, and then we'll move through it. This is God's Word. James chapter 4, verse 11 through chapter 5, verse 6. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. If, however, you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, those saying today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, who don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a breath appearing for a little while, then vanishing. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord should will, we will live and do this or that. However, now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Then, whoever knows the good thing to do and doesn't do it, for him it is sin. The wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter." You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. It's quite often for us to um, emphasize the fact that here at our church, our primary concern is the worship and adoration of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and making much of Him. And for some people, that means that we do it at the expense of being uh, more practical, as they might say. Uh, We don't really have uh, deep concern to present you with sermons along the lines of how to roll away the stones in your life, how to defeat the giants of your life, five steps to marital bliss, 17 steps to financial freedom, three keys to a happy life now. This just isn't our style. It's not our focus. It's not the point. And some people would say, maybe critically of us, you know, I, I don't know. It's really not about me. I find I go to that church, and I just don't really hear very much about me. Well, if you are ever tempted to think that way, you're in luck today, because this is all about you. In fact, if you go back into chapter 4, verse 1, all the way through chapter 5, verse 6, and you look at all of the personal pronouns, the you pronouns, over 50 times in just those few verses, James says, you or your. And because sometimes the English translates a Greek word where the pronoun is sort of built into it, it's even way more than that. You could translate it with way more yous. So if you're looking for a sermon about you today's your day. You, 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 over and over and over again. Why is it so important? It is so important because you don't want to submit to God, you are not naturally humble, and you need to repent, and so do I. And so, just like last week, we said that that submission and humility is seen in the way that we respond to each other and to God and even to ourselves and our own view of ourselves. So, this week we're going to see what repentance looks like when we don't submit to God and engage in three particular sins. The accusation of the brothers, the insult to our Creator, and the oppression of the powerless. When we accuse the brethren, when we insult the Creator, and when we oppress the powerless. Now, let's take a look at those one by one. The first one comes to us in that original section there where James begins in verse 11 by saying, do not speak evil against one another. He says the same thing in verse 11, a second time, and then a third time. Speak evil against a brother. Speak evil against a brother. Speak evil against the law and judges the law. Now you have to understand what that word speaks evil means because it only appears here and one other book in the Bible, 1 Peter, a couple times there. It's a very rare word. It's not common in the Greek language. It's not common in the New Testament. It literally means to speak somebody down, talk them down, talk to somebody else about a brother or sister in Christ and speak them down. Make the person you're talking to think less of the person you're talking about. Now, I use the word slander here, accusation here, because it's often how it is presented, but that's not always the case. To speak evil against somebody is to simultaneously tear them down to build you up. It is the opposite of humility. It's going around and trying to undermine someone's character in the eyes of somebody else. And I think it's very important for us to understand the distinction between speaking evil against somebody and lying. Because there are times where you can speak evil against somebody and be speaking truth. This is not an accusation that you are lying, or even an accusation that you're not showing love. It's an accusation against believers like us who have a propensity and a tendency to talk about other people in ways that tear them down, even if it's true. And oftentimes, the reason we tear them down is we think somehow by doing that it's going to prop us up. Now, does that mean that you're not supposed to rebuke somebody when they sin? Absolutely not. But here's the difference. You're addressing sin and you're rebuking the person who's doing the sinning. Uh, That's not tearing them down. That's not slandering them. That's doing what we as the body of Christ are supposed to do within the church. Uh, What about those passages that say that we're supposed to avoid people who are living in unrepentant sin and naming the name of Christ? Well, once again, you're not speaking evil against that person. You're simply obeying what the Scripture says, and there are times where somebody comes into the church, pretends to be a Christian, and lives this life of absolutely consistent lack of repentance. And as a result, you have to render a verdict, and yes, you can as the body of Christ, but you don't do that on your own. So, there are times where you're going to have to say something about somebody else that isn't flattering, but be careful of the context. Be careful of the motive, and be careful of the outcome. Here, the author is being very clear. He is saying that when you talk somebody down in order to prop yourself up, what you are doing is literally climbing onto the bench of the universe. You are putting on the robes of the Trinity. You are picking up the gavel, and you are leaning down, and you are looking at the accused person, and you are rendering a verdict against them in the name of God. That's why it's so heavy and intense. I want you to notice in the rest of this section how many times he says judge and law. I think I had most of them underlined there in your copy in the bulletin. Over and over again, it's judgment and it's law. What he is saying here is that when you do that against somebody else, you are taking the law of God and you are wielding it as a weapon against them. And you are becoming the judge. And when you stand in that place, you literally stand in judgment of the law and in judgment of God. That's what serious it is. You're standing in judgment of God. So be careful whenever you're tempted to disobey the Lord in this regard, that you tear down somebody else in order to somehow build yourself up. Be extremely cautious and careful about the way you speak about each other. And understand the difference between going to a person, a brother or sister in Christ, and on the basis of God's law, bringing to their attention a situation or an action in which you do believe that they are in violation of it and letting God be the judge, and you climbing on to that bench, donning the robe, and doing the judging yourself. That's what the author wants us to be careful about here. Now, as we look at this a little bit more carefully, we have to understand that the Apostle Paul and others would affirm exactly what he's saying here. It's not like James is speaking alone. Jesus says this. He says not to judge one another. Be careful about the speck in your, or the log in your own eye before you try to take the, the speck out of your brother's eye. There is clearly a pattern of behavior that's expected of us as Christians where we are to be careful about what we say about each other. This applies to, to those of you who are in positions of leadership. You know, it's hard sometimes when you're in a position of leadership, and you're dealing with people all the time, and you're ministering to them, and you're counseling them, and you're, you're hearing them uh, out as they're talking about wrestling through struggles with sin in their own life. Uh, you end up becoming somebody who acquires quite a bit of knowledge about other people. And, and there are times where you might be tempted to Divulge some of that information, and I would caution you, if you are in a position where you are hearing things, you're a disciple, or you're a counselor, you're an elder, you're a deacon, you're a pastor, make it a habit very early on to speak seldom about other people, especially if you find yourself tempted to share things you shouldn't, that are not going to build them up, but are going to tear them down. Now, the Apostle Paul, when he talks about this to the Ephesian believers… He puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 29. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do you see the difference? You know, James doesn't offer us so much of a correction. We'll go to Paul for that. You know, anything that will corrupt, anything that will bring rot, anything that will bring corrosion into the church and don't let that come out of your mouth but only what is good for building up what fits the occasion meaning it's appropriate and that gives grace to those who hear it and verse 30 do not grieve the holy spirit of god by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption isn't it interesting that it's the very holy spirit of god who is offended and grieved when we as christians engage in this he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I mean, I haven't done an in depth, comprehensive, academic, double blind tested study on this, but I've been around for a little while. And I would assume that it's safe to say most of the evil speaking that goes on in the church is a consequence of the speaker's inability to forgive. When you have a heart that can't forgive, it holds on to this acidic, corrosive, kind of bitterness that eats away at you. And before long, you become known as the person who simply can't say anything good about anybody. You're constantly bemoaning your situation or complaining about how other people treat you. And the reality is you carry all of that because you simply cannot forgive. And the person who cannot forgive is most often the person who's never been forgiven. You know, so often we're the ones who forget the enormous debt that we were forgiven and like it says in the parable, go out in the street and try to strangle that person who owes us just a little. The heart that can't forgive is the heart that is often speaking evil against other people. So the first thing we want to make sure we repent of is this accusing of the brethren, speaking evil of the brethren. The second one is... Um, pretty intense, and, and, and that is essentially insulting our Maker. Now, he shifts gears, and, and James is funny this way, James, J- have, you ever talked to, have you ever had a conversation with somebody who can't stay on one topic? Yeah, okay? Like, I don't want to see you couples looking at one another and pointing, okay? <laughs> we just talked about forgiveness, okay? But, but you're, you're, you're trying, you're trying to follow. And, and you feel like, if I, can just, if I can just plant a flag here, I'm going to hold on. I'm sure we're going to come back to this. And, and some, some people in the conversation, they're just really singular in their thinking. They just have one, one track. Okay, now I'm not going to make a, a gender assumption here. But let's just think maybe guys tend to be like that. We're like the... We're like... I'm mean, gonna. Some of you are not know what I'm talking about, you younger people, but just Google it later. It, we're like a tape, a cassette tape. You put it in, you press play, it just goes in one direction. You can stop, you can rewind, we're kind of like that. Every once in a while it gets like chewed up in the process, and you've got to pull it out, get a pencil and straighten it out. <laughs> Very... It's kind of us, okay? It could be that... The other gender, they're more like those CD players that had 27 tracks that they could play, and they seem to be able to do it, like, simultaneously. And I know this because I've experienced it, because I'm, I'm just playing the tape I've been playing all day long, you know, we're just making it through, you know, song after song, I come in and I don't realize, okay, what track are we on? I just stepped in, we're somewhere on like track 33, because the conversation, which may have even happened this morning, begins with something like, I think we should do four. You're going, trying to figure out where was I on that? Where was that conversation from? Some people can hold multiple things at one time and expect you to know exactly what they mean when they refer to it. Now, I don't mean to be kind of glib or funny, but I feel James is kind of like that. I read James, and I'm like, oh, wow, here we are, on a different subject. He just switches gears real fast. That's why in the old days, when they were trying to figure out how to, how to structure James in the English language, like chapters and verses, there was all this disagreement because no one could figure out where one idea started and another one stopped. So what James does here, if you feel like he's shifting gears really fast, it's because he is. He's going from interpersonal relationships to how it is that, that we insult God by presuming that we're in charge so it's okay if you feel like this is abrupt but look what he says come now you might have thought he's talking to the people who are accusing the brethren but he's not he's changing subjects he says come now look over here we're done with that now look over here come now those who say and then he's going to give a quote he's going to make up something this is not like a quote from the Bible. He's not quoting somebody at the church. He's just saying, here's a made-up statement. Tell me if this resonates with you. Here's a made-up way of talking. And this is what he comes up with. He says, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and spend a year there in trade and make a profit. Like that's about as generic a statement as you can get. Would you agree? I don't think anyone in that church is going to be like, oh man, he's talking about me. You ever feel that way? A preacher gets up and says something, and you're like, man, why don't you just, why do you have to, like, bring me up as an example? I guarantee you, like, at least I don't do that. But if that's how you're hearing it, take it from the Lord. And if you're hearing this today, take it from the Lord. Don't take it from me. He's given a very generic statement, but I think most of us are going to feel some conviction here. What does it mean when we say that? That's the question. What does it mean? You know what it means? It means that we think we have control over four very important things. Are you ready for this? It means that you think you have control over these four things. Number one, time. You think you've got control over your time. He says today or tomorrow. How many of you know If you are going to live until tomorrow, none of you. I don't either. So when I talk about today or tomorrow, I will do this. That presumes on the Creator who controls everything. The second thing here that this presumes is freedom. He says, Today or tomorrow, I will go. I will do whatever I want to do, I'll do whatever I want. It's my life. And he says, You're presuming. You have no idea if you've got that kind of freedom. Thirdly, wisdom. He says, I'm going to go to such and such a city, spend a year, then I'm going to trade. I mean, I'm going to have the wisdom to know what to do, to conduct my business. I'm going to have my mind. None of that's going to be affected. I'm going to have my own time. I'm going to have my own freedom. I'm going to have my own wisdom. And by thinking this way, it's like we're stealing that from God. And James is saying it's a deeply offensive thing. It's an undermining of your humility, an undermining of your submission. It's a sin that you need to repent of. And so not only is it time and freedom and wisdom, but I love the last one, success and make a profit. Oh, I'm going to go whenever I want, wherever I want, do whatever I want and I'm going to make a lot of money doing it. That's how he describes it. And you might be thinking, I've never said that. <laughs> you don't have to say it to live it out, though, because for many of us, that's what we do every day. And you say, but wow, that seems a little bit uh, excessive, isn't it? I mean, that, that sounds like something that you could probably do all the time without even really thinking about it. That sounds like something that you could just sort of do every day because you're just trying to provide for your family. You're just trying to be productive. You're trying to be a good citizen. You're trying to do all the things that you are prepared to do. You, you get up early in the morning, and you're working to, to do a good job for your boss. It's like, come on, man. Do I have to wake up every day, and, like, before I pull out of the driveway, I think to myself, well, this day is not my own. I could die driving into work. Lord, please remind me of that. And as you're backing out, think to yourself, you know, I really am going to go to work, I think. But I'm totally open if, you know, you don't want me going to work. And then, and then you pull in and you sort of get out your card to open up the door and say, now, I think this is how it works, but I don't want to presume on, on knowing how to get to my office again today, so Lord, please don't, don't allow me to walk down the hall with arrogant pride thinking my key is going to work. And, then, and you don't just sit at the computer and, and pull up your screen and go, Lord, I have no idea if what I'm going to do today is good or not. Can you imagine living like that? That's going to be a huge drag on your productivity. So what is he saying? He's saying be aware of the fact that you're not aware of it. Be aware of the fact that we can so casually move into our day with the assumption that we can just do whatever we want. And what it can lead to is a gradual wearing away of your active perception of of two very important principles, and he talks about this in the next part of the verse. Look what he says. He says, you are the ones, verse 14, who don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a breath appearing for a little while and then vanishing. Do you see what's going to stabilize you? Three little things there. Number one, you're a breath. That means, and I don't want to be offensive to any of you if you're used to being, you know, propped up, uh, you're nothing, you're nothing, you're, 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 you're a breath, you're a vapor. If you've ever been somewhere where it's cold enough to see your breath, I know some of you from San Diego, you're like, oh no, I would never do that, I don't think I'd ever survive. <laughs> some of us grew up in climates where you could see your breath like eight months of the year. But what happened was you exhaled, there it was, and then it was gone. It's not, like a, it's not like a cloud even where you would like ponder it and see if you could see a shape. It's just there and it's gone. It's nothing. He is saying there's nothing substantial to you in terms of this life. The second thing He says here about it is that it's there for a little while, very, very short time, and then finally it vanishes. It means it's forgotten. So you're, you're, you're nothing in the grand scheme of things in, in terms of like, like eternal significance in this life. This life you have, the one controlled by time, he says, it's, it's a vapor. It's here and it's gone. And it's very, very short. And no one's going to remember it. I remember when I preached through Ecclesiastes one time, I said, the theme of the book is this, you're going to live, love, die, and be forgotten. Isn't this going to be a fun series? But that's what it is. You're going to live, love, die, and be forgotten. Go to any graveyard. Look around. Look around. That'll be you, and you'll be as forgotten as all the people you walk by. You know none of them. And so the author is saying, before you presume that you have sort of the same eternal substance of God and act like this, put yourself in your place. Literally get over yourself. Get over yourself. How do you do that? He gives us two very important ways here as he wraps up. Notice. Instead, verse 15, you ought to say, if the Lord should will, we will live or do this or that. (laughs) There's the answer. The answer is that your time, your freedom, your wisdom, your success is always to be subjected to, number one, your understanding of your own frailty, that you are a breath who's here for a time and then forgotten, and God's sovereignty, that He's in control. So all of my thinking, all of my planning, by the way, it's not wrong to plan. It's not like you get up every day with no idea what you're going to do. That doesn't honor the Lord. That's clearly not what he's saying. I don't even have to say that. But what he is saying is that whatever we do, we do it in light of the fact that our frailty and his sovereignty inform a proper understanding of how we live our lives, because everything else is arrogance, everything else is sin. As I said earlier on, I mean, you might think, well, that's really intense because, man, I go through my day most of the time not even thinking about that, which is why he says in verse 17, then whoever knows the good thing to do and doesn't do it for him, it's a sin. He just reminds us of that. That's what that verse means. It means that, that, that you know now, you know better. When you ignore it, it's a sin. Be aware of that. Just be aware of how easy it is for you to fall into the sin of insulting your Creator by simply presuming that you have full control of your life. That's it. And That isn't a hard burden to bear. In fact, it's, it's a good sense of just consciousness of how it is that we live and function and move in this fallen world. So he says, be very careful about these accusations or this talking down about the brethren. Be very careful about insulting your Creator by being presumptuous about all the things you think that you're going to do. And then thirdly, Another area where we're going to need to constantly repent is that of oppressing the powerless. Notice that in the last part of the verse, the last part of the section. Now, in this section of oppressing the powerless, there's going to be four particular sins, you might say, that that are easy to commit. And uh, I want to say before I even get into this that there's a lot of debate, but I really don't see any clear avenue that leads to the conclusion that this section was not written to believers. James is writing to the church. He's he's writing to Christians. So, we all need to just sit up straight and listen to this for a moment, because if you think, oh, well, we're talking about rich people now, so number one, I don't need to listen because I'm not rich. (laughs) Some of you are thinking, yeah, this is great. You preach it, those rich people. You let them have it. Also, don't think, well, clearly this couldn't be a Christian who does this, so it must be all those mean rich people out there who are unbelievers, and so we'll all sort of rally around this, and we'll figure out a way to, you know, take them down. No, I think that James is talking to believers, and he's talking to you and me. This is coming right at you, so don't deflect it. Don't try to put it off on somebody else. Receive this from him, okay? This is what he says. There are really four ways in which we do this. The first one is just, uh, and 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 I've sort of alliterated this. Um, so they all start with S, and uh, I don't know why I did that. I just did it. So don't, don't speak evil against me after the service. <laughs> Number one, storing. Verse one, uh, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their poison... Will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Wow. Storing up. Very interesting way that he describes this. He, he tells the rich that they are to, to weep and wail. And the second word there, it's this onomatopoietic word in the original that sounds like what moaning and sorrow would sound like. It's a word that sounds like the word, it sounds like the action. And so he says you need to, to weep and grieve and wail. He wants you to be in a position of, of being contrite and broken. Remember back to, to, to Watson's description? You've got to see your sin for what it is. Feel real sorrow for it. Confess it for what it is. Feel the shame. Hate it. And then turn. know the opposite, when we talk about people who, who aren't really repentant, have you ever had that conversation with somebody and you wonder, is that person really repentant? Have, have, have they really, truly Repented of their sin? Well, there's a lot of bad ways you can try to evaluate that, but I think a, a decent one is to go through this pattern, meaning if you find somebody, if you just reverse it, you find somebody who has not turned from their sin, they're just continually doing it in, like, unrepentant, thoughtless action. They are just continuing to live in that sin. Well, that's clearly not a repentant person. They don't hate it. They don't feel shame about it. They're not confessing it. They don't feel sorrowful about it, so they probably don't even see it, which means they're not really repentant. But here, James says to people like us, wake up, see it for what it is. You've done this to yourself. You've gathered up these garments that are going to be nothing but moth food. In the old days, your garments were very important. They were one of the major stores of wealth. Maybe you'll remember in Ephesians, Paul says to be careful, like to the the women in, in, in the church, be careful how you come in all dressed up with your hair all done up, One of the reasons he says that is because it was a way for people to flaunt their wealth. Women would often wear their hair up, and they'd wrap it in pearls, and they'd put these golden hair holders in there. Yeah, that's the right term, isn't it? (laughs) They'd wear dresses that were cost like a year's wages. Garments were very, very expensive. In the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, you'll oftentimes see garments as a way of paying for something. Or, or a way of handing down wealth. And he says, what you've done is you've gathered up this wealth, and it's just going to be eaten up by moths, and even your silver and gold, which normally wasn't subject to rust. I mean, how many people have seen rusty gold? <laughs> the reason you use gold is that it doesn't rust, and silver doesn't rust. He says, even your silver and gold is rusting. Even these permanent stores of wealth are rusting away. And worse than that, all this stuff has become, the word there is poison. That's like a better translation. It's the same word for what is uh, under the lips of people who speak awful things about each other, murderous thoughts and words. It's like it's, it's, like it's eating you away. And your hoarding, your, your, your storing up of wealth is literally eating away at you. It was never meant for you to accumulate it and hold it and store it up. And it's imagery here of storing it up against the last day or in the last days. In the last days, which are the days since Christ ascended, it's in these last days that He can return. And when He does, the question will be, is my wealth, as it were, stored up in heaven, or is my wealth stored up on earth? Have I been like the parable of the fool who says I had such a great year that I have nowhere to store all my grain, so I'm going to tear down my old ones, build up my, build new ones, and then I can store up all of my wealth, and I can sit back and retire and say, eat, drink, and be merry, and Jesus says that person had their soul taken that very night, because that's how a fool thinks, that's how a fool talks. So storing up, that was the first one. The second one he talks about here, beginning in verse 4, is stealing. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, they are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. When somebody does work for you, and you shortchange them, or you fail to pay them, or you find a way to weasel out of what you owe, it's the same as stealing. And he is very concerned about how people are treated. He's very concerned about the way that the poor are treated. And James says that if you are guilty of these sorts of things, speaking to these rich people that were in the church, using a very specific illustration like mowing a field, and you withhold those wages from the person who's doing that that work, you're stealing from them. And It's bad enough that you're doing that, but the real fear should not be that they'll take you to court. The real fear should be that the person who noticed it is the Lord of hosts. Look down at what that says, the Lord of hosts. This is translated in the Hebrew as Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of the armies, the Lord who rules and reigns. The image is that, obviously, it's anthropomorphic, but it's of God rolling up His sleeve. If you see somebody take their jacket off and unbutton their cuff and roll up their sleeve and position themselves squared off against an opponent, you know what's going to come next, don't you? There's going to be a fight. And this is the way in which God is depicted the Lord of the armies. He is the one who intercedes on behalf of the poor. Now, we could go all the way through the book of Proverbs on this, and I gave the small group leaders in their sort of digest of this message a whole list of Proverbs that you guys can go to. I'm not going to go to all of them, but let me just give you a couple because I think they're so clear, so powerful. This is what the Lord says in terms of His desire to make sure that He always cares for the poor and that they are meaningful to him. Proverbs chapter 3. He says, do not withhold, verse 27, good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. You don't withhold wages. You don't withhold what you can do for somebody else. And then I love Proverbs chapter 14, verse 31. It doesn't get simpler than this, everybody. Proverbs 14, 31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Do you want to insult God? Insult the poor. Do you want to honor the Lord? Be generous with the poor. Now, I'm sure that a statement like that is going to raise all sorts of questions in your mind, and I would encourage you throughout the week to reach out to me and ask me. I would love to interact with you on specifics. I I mean that. I would literally love to interact with you on specifics about this because it's very hard for us in our culture to discern who is genuinely poor and who is just lazy. And I don't believe that this verse means every time you get off the freeway, you're supposed to give money to the person standing on the corner with a sign that says, anything helps. And I do believe that Proverbs is equally clear that there are strict consequences for those who will not work. And so we have to be discerning and use wisdom in in, in how we evaluate who is genuinely poor. And I think it's a case-by-case situation sometimes. But as a general principle, those who are genuinely needy and oppressed Earlier in James, chapter 1, verse 26, 27, right? It's the the widows, the orphans, those who are in distress, those who are genuinely in need. They are the ones to whom we do not withhold good, because in doing so, we are honoring the Lord. So, storing up, stealing. Number three, separating. This is also a way that the powerless are oppressed. Verse 5, you have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your heart in a day of slaughter. amazing, isn't it? What he's saying here is that you have the ability with money to recede into a place where you don't even have to interact with the poor. There's this really great scene in The Great Gatsby where F. Scott Fitzgerald is describing this, and he talks about Tom and Daisy, and, and they're not willing to talk to Nick about what happened in the tragic death at the car crash, and and if you don't know what I'm talking about, just pretend I didn't say all that because that's a whole lot of lead-up that doesn't matter. There's this point, though, where where Nick, the narrator, describes them this way because they flee to Europe, and he says they retreated into their money, and I'll never forget that. They retreated into their money. Money is this amazing fortress into which the rich can retreat— and hide away from so many of the consequences and the situations of everyday life that other people are exposed to all the time. And I think what the author is saying here to us is that we all are in a position where we are at risk of violating that. We're at risk. Okay? It's like when you go to the doctor and they say, based on your genetic history, you're in a high-risk category for this disease. I'm saying to you, my fellow believers, my fellow Christians here in this church, wealthy Americans, I'm just saying we are in a high-risk category of being the types that can hoard wealth, of being the types that can take advantage of people, the types that can recede into our wealth and not have to ever endure or deal with people who are enduring the consequences of living in this difficult world. It's just a warning And if we see that as a pattern in our lives, there's a repentance that needs to happen. And there's one more, and that is sacrificing. And I use that word. I know it's a strong word, but I'm going to use it anyway. He says here at the very end, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The same word for resist there is used earlier in James, where he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. It means to simply dig in your heels. It doesn't mean fight back. It just means dig in your heels. And what he's saying here is that the poor, they're not even putting up a fight, they're not even resisting you. You have the power. You've got all the cards. Rich people, he says, you got them all. You got all the money, all the advantages, you got all the legal help, you got everything. And if you want, you can exploit and take advantage of these people. And in some ways, it's really played out in terms of murder with someone like David. I mean, we read a psalm he wrote earlier today, Psalm chapter 5, but David himself, as you know, was the one who crafted a scheme whereby the innocent Uriah is sent out into battle and then all the people around him who should have been fighting with him retreat and he is left alone out there exposed and he dies because David wanted to make it look like somehow the consequences of his sin were not what they appeared to be. And Uriah was sacrificed. I mean, this happens all the time. Maybe not in a literal, physical way where people are killed, but just think about it. In so many other realms, politically or in business, loyal people are simply sacrificed because it's expedient. Those who have the power can simply sacrifice those who are powerless. And this is one of the problems that rich people can fall into, unsuspectingly, if they're not careful all the time about living in such a way that honors the Lord. So, what are the risks in this third category for oppressing the poor? Again, remember, this is us. We're being very practical today because this is you. This is me. I want to make sure that when I speak about somebody else that I am not tearing them down to build myself up. I want to be very careful how I live my life and plan my day so that I'm always remembering that it is only by God's sovereignty and His will that I accomplish anything. I have to be super careful when it comes to the places where I've got power over somebody else and make sure that I'm not using that to simply store up for myself something that I view as my security, that I am not in any way stealing from somebody if I owe them something, that I am not the sort of person who just hides behind my wealth so I don't even have to deal with it, and that I'm not the kind of person who would sacrifice somebody else to make my life more comfortable I hope that these are challenging words for you today. And you might be asking yourself, okay, well, what's the response? And I want to give you three kinds of repentance. We talked about the, the gospel repentance at the beginning of the sermon. So let me just quickly brief, uh, give you two more. There is uh, what we might call a natural repentance. And I believe that natural repentance is the regret that people feel because God has given them a conscience and they know they've hurt somebody else. Even unbelievers can have natural repentance. Even unbelievers can feel bad about something they've done, and they wish they hadn't done it. Even unbelievers can, can change their life dramatically. You know, they, they, they give up certain sinful practices, and they, it's like a repentance of sorts. But it's kind of a natural repentance. The, the second repentance there is a legal repentance. And this, this repentance, um, this comes from essentially a fear of divine wrath. Now, there are whole religious systems that are built around convincing people that God is going to judge you and condemn you, and therefore, you better stay in line. In fact, pretty much every other religion other than true Christianity is built around that. Change your behavior. Conform to a standard. Do what you do for fear of God's judgment. Neither of those are gospel repentance. Gospel repentance. Comes from the true conviction of dishonoring the Lord, who in his eternal kindness and mercy and grace has saved us. And therefore, we obey not out of fear, but out of a genuine desire to honor and please him, knowing that we will do that imperfectly, and therefore, when we don't, when we stumble, when we fail, There's a genuine conviction, a genuine sorrow that comes, not just because I know it's wrong and I'm hurting society, not just because I'm fearing God's wrath, but because I dishonored my Lord, and He rescued me from my sin and judgment, and in return for that, I went back to that very sin and indulged in it. That's what breaks my heart. In his book, Watson talks about these three people who were discussing why it is that they want to obey the Lord and confess their sin, and the one person said, I'm doing it because of the glories of heaven. The other person said, I'm doing it out of fear of hell, and the third person said, I'm doing it because of the love of God. If you obey and if you repent because of your overwhelming sense of the love of God, it will serve you well going forward. And you'll remember what Watson wrote here as I gave it to you as a quote in the bulletin. As our sin is ever before us, so God's promise must be ever before us. As we much feel our sting, so we must look up to Christ, our brazen serpent. If that's something you don't understand, because you might not have been here when we talked about it a few weeks ago, that brazen serpent in Numbers 21 was held up in the camp when the Jewish people were dying from snake bites as a consequence of violating God's covenant. And he tells Moses to build this and put it up there. And what it is is a snake, a dead snake, impaled on a stake. And it's there for everybody to see and to remind them That the snakes that were biting them, the curse that came upon them for their disobedience, God has killed that curse. And if they look to it, they will be saved and they will be healed. And in the New Testament, Jesus himself says, that was pointing to me. I became sin for you. I became the curse for you. God the Father crushed me so that when you look to me in faith, you will be healed and you will be saved. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for that message and that truth. And may today be a day of humble, submissive repentance for all of us. Give us eyes to see our sin, sorrow to feel how it grieves you. Mouths that are willing to quickly confess to others and to you what we have done. A mind that understands the shame that we should feel. A heart that burns with hatred against it. And Lord, in the end, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the ability to turn away from that which dishonors you and back to you yourself, our loving Heavenly Father, who races back to embrace us and give us the relationship we so desire. We pray these things in the name of Christ, our brazen serpent. Amen. Amen.